I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died for our sins, all of our sins, not just mine. I believe that I am a Christian. I am a changed person. And as I was told in those days, uh, becoming a Christian is not just an event. It's a lifestyle change. You have to change everything. And as I came from the far end of the dark side, I had a lot of things to change. I had to stop cursing. I had to stop stealing. I had to stop beating people up for fun. Uh, I had to stop working in the club where I was surrounded by naked women and, and booze and alcohol and drugs and, and all that. I had to change and that took a lot of work. Probably took me about a year. My story's kind of simple, but interesting. I was born Catholic, raised Catholic and beaten by the nuns. After high school, when I joined the military, I fell away. And uh, the older I got, the more that I did not believe in God. I uh, went into college and studied every class that I could including many philosophy classes and uh, uh, even wrote papers on why there was no existence of God and people used God as a crutch. Uh, after several failed marriages, I began to not like women. I got into working in strip clubs. I was uh, very physically fit and used to fight in the martial arts. Uh, I used to uh, beat people up for fun. I used to um, curse a lot. I used to steal. I used to uh, uh, do a lot of those things that um, sorry. I used to do a lot of those things that uh, would say that somebody was a bad person. Uh, I used to deal drugs and I used to pimp women out uh, to do things. And uh, I met a guy when I was working at a gun store during the day uh, and I worked in strip clubs at night and um, he used to do the same. Uh, this was he, this guy uh, ended up being my best friend Eric, and uh, uh, he tried to talk to me about uh, Christianity and Jesus, and it just turned me off. And I said, "No way, you know, I, I don't want to hear about it." And uh, over uh, a good year, uh, practicing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with him three times a week, he would ask me. Uh, little questions he would these little tidbits he would give me and uh, I would have to take that home and think about it and come back with a response and uh, uh, after 
a year of three days a week, I was finally convinced that there was a God. And uh, he said, okay, now we have to go to church. And I said, okay, I'll go to church someday. And uh, after many weeks, and probably months of me saying that I will go to church. He finally came over one day and woke me up after getting off of work at the clubs at four o'clock in the morning. He woke me up in the morning and told me, uh, we're going to church. And I said, okay. I went to church. I heard a message. There was an altar call and I went right down to the front crying. Yeah. What a powerful testimony from Randy Loss. We're gonna hear more from him in just a few minutes. But I just want you to know I'm so excited to be with y'all today as we continue in our sermon series, Arise. If you don't know me, I am Scott Blount. I'm the associate minister here at Bureau Christian Church. And man, I am so stoked to share from God's Word with you today. Now, today we're going to examine the idea that we must arise to faith. So whether you're in the room joining us or whether you're on the live stream checking us out, or maybe watching later on On Demand, or listening to the podcast later, I bring you greetings in the name of the resurrected Christ. His name is Jesus. Now, when I was growing up in the late 60s and early 70s, one of my favorite television shows was Dragnet, starring uh, Jack Webb as Sergeant Joe Friday, and Harry Morgan, who later went on to play Colonel Potter in the TV series MASH, right? But in this series, Harry uh, was Bill Gannon, Officer Bill Gannon. And so Sergeant Joe Friday and Officer Bill Gannon took us to the mean streets of Los Angeles week in and week out. And they were investigating the crime of the week, and as they would investigate this crime, they would be interviewing witnesses to the crime. And Sergeant Joe Friday had a famous tagline, just the facts. I heard somebody say it, just the facts, all right? If he was talking to a man, it was just the facts, sir. If he was talking to a lady, it was just the facts, ma'am. Now, I got to tell you, I've always been kind of a facts guy myself. In fact, I find myself agreeing with conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, who says, the facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. But you know, there are times when our feelings just don't get lined up with the facts. Now, if you have known me for more than a minute, then you know that I am a huge University of Kentucky college basketball fan. All right, I think they are a great basketball team. And then they lose to Vandy twice inside of a week. And then they lose in the only game they wound up playing in this year's SEC tournament. By the way, that was to Vandy, second loss in a week. Then they make it into the NCAA tournament, and they win their first game. Yes, 
only to lose the second game in that weekend. University of Kentucky has one NCAA tournament victory to their credit in the last four years. And I have to tell you, that hurts. That hurts. You see, my truth says that Kentucky is a great college basketball team, the greatest in the country. But the facts beg to differ. And we live in a culture that has coined the phrase, your truth, my truth, right? And frankly, that's an attempt to eliminate the truth because perception and feelings reign supreme in this mindset. Now, to be sure, today I'm not here to diminish feelings, okay? I'm not saying that feelings don't matter because they do. They are important. But the problem is when we let our feelings override the facts because we don't like the way it makes us feel, eh, we got a problem. You see, feelings and facts should work hand in hand. But to deny the facts because I don't like the way they make me feel, that's not healthy, it's not helpful, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yet there are many who are confused to this day about this Jesus guy. They're confused about the reality of Jesus. Is he an historical figure or is he just something that somebody made up? And the debate rages on to this day. So in this instance, what's at stake if your truth is wrong? Well, your eternity eternity is at stake. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And we need to help people understand that life without Jesus is death. Eternal death. Separation from God. It is an eternity of torment and anguish and pain and suffering. But life with Jesus is life. It's eternal life in the presence of God. It's an eternity of love and joy and peace. There is a big difference. So today, we want to check out some eyewitness accounts and also look into the writings from a major historian from the first century who, while born a few years after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection, nevertheless, serves as a first-century extra-biblical source declaring Jesus to be an historical figure and identifying him as the Christ. So we want to arise to faith this morning. Let's arise to faith. We're going to do so by beginning our examination of eyewitness accounts regarding the historical reality of Jesus, and especially regarding the historical reality of the resurrection. Now, I'm going to be referring to some uh, chapters in various Gospels this morning. I'm not going to read the whole chapters. I encourage you to do that. Please don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. I'm just going to read a part of each of these accounts. But I want you to dig deep into the word to find the truth. And we're going to start this morning with the eyewitness account in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, I'm going to put some verses on the screen because I'm going to be reading the first seven verses. After the Sabbath, 
at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary uh, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So that's our first eyewitness account. The second eyewitness account we want to examine this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark wrote down as a kind of as the scribe for Peter, an apostle of Jesus. And Peter was, was giving Mark information about the time that he spent following Jesus during his earthly ministry. So this is Peter's eyewitness account as is recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And if the first seven verses of Mark chapter 16 sound familiar, well, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Remember, Peter's telling the story, so he's got to include himself in there, right? Please uh, go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he has told you. Now, your detective senses may be up again, and you're going, yeah, that's sounding like a pattern is forming here. I'm about about to figure out there's something going on, right? Under the Old Testament law, the uh, the eyewitness testimony of two eyewitnesses was enough to take care of whatever the business was that was before us at the time. But we're not going to stop at two. Let's check out a third eyewitness, a third eyewitness from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Again, I'm going to read, you might see some pattern going on here too, the first seven verses, the first seven verses of Luke, chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, "'Why do you look for the living among the dead?' He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. 
Now, you've got to admit, even Sergeant Joe Friday would be impressed with these facts. Yes, these eyewitnesses' accounts have a few minor differences in some of the details. Like some of them are named the women and some of them don't. And, you know, there's a few little minor details. But the, the differences in these accounts are so minor that it doesn't really affect what the whole story is. And i got to tell you that legal experts will say, if you've got some witnesses and they all tell the exact same story to the letter, they probably got together beforehand and they probably lying. Okay? Because all of us, as we witness something, we're going to see different aspects of the, what has happened. And we're going to be able to, to tell different things, even though the whole story is the same. And that's what's going on here. So two eyewitnesses in the Old Testament law would be enough. We've already gone to three. Let's double the minimum. Let's check out a fourth eyewitness. Even the apostle whom Jesus loved, and that's how John describes himself in his gospel, he has an eyewitness account for us to consider as well. We're going to take a look at the first three verses of John chapter 20, the first three verses of John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I love the way John tells this story, don't you? Peter and John, that's the other disciple in this account, they raced to the tomb to see what Mary's babbling on about. She's talking about a dead man raising all on his own, and they can't figure out what's going on. But they have a race, a foot race to the tomb. And John, in his account, can't help but say, that he outran Peter to the tomb, right? I mean, that would be like Vero Christian Church member and master marathoner Mike Smith challenging me, a retired runner, to a race across town. I mean, we know who's going to win that one, right? Of course we do. Now, all levity aside, the facts of this story are completely consistent. The facts of this story would drive the greatest movement known to mankind. The facts of this story caused many of the eyewitnesses to choose death over recanting their story. And still, there are those who would say, yeah, but this is just the accounts of those who were in on it. Those who question the historical accuracy of the Bible even though the Bible has been proven to be a reliable historical document on numerous occasions, they're still going to try to cast doubt because it's based on their perception. And their perception is there because the devil, one of his favorite tactics is to distort, distract, and destroy. He wants to distort, distract, and destroy. And if he can convince people that the Bible is not God's Word, if he can convince people that the Bible is not the truth, 
then those who will believe his distortion and distraction, he can lead to eternal destruction. Now, fortunately, there are several extra-biblical sources confirming the historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the most convincing of those sources is a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. And Josephus was born in 37 A.D. Because of his proximity to Jesus in both time and place, his writings have a near eyewitness quality about them as they relate to the entire cultural background of the New Testament era. Josephus is the most comprehensive primary source on Jewish history that has survived from antiquity. That, that means a long time ago, because remember he was born in 37 AD. Okay? Josephus has always been deemed as a crucial extra-biblical resource, since his writings not only uh, correlate well with both the Old and New Testaments, but they often provide additional evidence on search, such personalities as Herod the Great and his dynasty, as John the Baptist, as Jesus' half-brother James, as the high priests, Annas and Caphirus. I never can say that when I'm doing it. Caiaphas. <laughs> he can tell us about Annas and Caiaphas and their clan. He can tell us about Pontius Pilate and others. So about Jesus, Josephus writes this. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people came from among the Jews and the other nations, and they became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So this most respected Jewish historian reports the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus in no uncertain terms. Now, in another of his writings, Josephus describes the death of Jesus' half-brother James in this way. Check this out. Convening the judges of the Sanhedrin, he brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. The brother's name was James, and certain others. And he accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. Just the facts. The brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Now, Josephus never converted to Christianity, but he certainly recognized the historical figure named Jesus, the brother of James, was called the Christ. So what to do with all of this? Well, you must know the facts and then live out the faith. you got to know the facts, and then you need to live out the faith. The facts are not dependent upon your perception. You've got to rely on the perception of the eyewitnesses and those 
uh, who were there, you know, within a few years of those events, and they confirmed that eyewitness testimony with their writings. Because from facts to faith, you must proclaim that Jesus is real. From facts to faith, you must proclaim that Jesus is real. The facts should lead you to faith in the one who died for your sins and who rose again to make a, a, a possibility of you to be able to, to live in the presence of God. But it's not enough to simply know the facts. Those facts have to be put into action. And that is what is known as your faith. Faith in Christ is not based on your perception. It's based on your acceptance of the facts regarding Jesus. And the facts about Jesus are not just that he was a real historical person. The fact is that Jesus is considered the Christ, the anointed one, God in the flesh. Our faith is built on those facts. And again, faith is more than simply believing in the facts. It's acting on those facts. It's living out a changed lifestyle because you're living the fact that you are no longer the boss of you. Jesus is. You are no longer the boss of you. Jesus is. Like the first century eyewitnesses, the testimony about Jesus combined with your testimony will lead others to salvation in Christ. Yes, the testimony about Jesus combined with your testimony is going to lead others to Christ. When you tell people about the difference that Jesus has made in your life, and when they see that difference lived out on a daily basis, they're going to be attracted to the one who has caused this to happen in your life. They'll be attracted to Jesus. We're going to listen to a little bit more from Randy Loss as he kind of wraps up his journey from a pagan lifestyle to a fully committed follower of Jesus. Check this out. Since that day that I became a Christian, March 19th of 2000, I, God lit a fire under me and I learned everything I could about the Bible, about Him. It helped me to see who He was and to love Him. And I, that love really grew. And uh, the more the love grew, the more I wanted to learn about Him the more I wanted to know. As my faith grew, I knew that I had to serve. Uh, serving was a big part of what God wanted in my life. And I served in any capacity that I could. I taught in the schools. I did the security ministry. Uh, I became a deacon and uh, eventually became an elder in this church. Right. So there's a simple formula for structuring your testimony, and you've just heard it 
in these two video segments from Randy today. Here's the simple structure. I once lived like that. Then I surrendered myself to the Lordship of Jesus. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit residing in me, I live like this. That's the simple way to structure your testimony. Now, I know not everybody has as dramatic a testimony as Randy Loss has, but everybody has a powerful testimony because I once lived like that, I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, I live like this. And that, my friends, is a powerful testimony. If you have any questions on how to formulate that testimony, how to share that testimony with others, please see me after the service. I would love to continue this conversation. If you're joining us online and you want to keep it up, then email us at hello at verochristian.com. Hello at verochristian.com. I promise you will hear from me quickly because there's no greater urgency than that of sharing the good news of the gospel with people who are far from God. May we share in that sense of urgency in the, uh, that the eyewitnesses of the first century had. May nothing deter us from this mystery, uh, from this mission, because may we remember that your truth, my truth, is a myth. Jesus is the truth. And it is the truth that sets us free from the bondage of sin and shame. It is the truth that puts us in a right relationship with God. The fact is that Jesus was not only crucified for our sins, but he rose on the third day to prepare a way for us to spend eternity with God in heaven. And that, my friends, should be enough motivation for us to want to share this good news with everyone today. Today. Throughout this sermon series, we've encouraged you to prayerfully consider inviting others to join us in this journey with Jesus. And many of you have posted names up on the invitation boards that now reside out in the Welcome Center. I got to tell you, during the 830 service, Bunny was here. Bonnie was one of those names, and she was invited by one of us, and she was here this morning because of that invitation. So, so keep it up. Keep praying for the people that you have named there because those people are precious souls in the sight of Jesus. So keep praying for them. But also, this week, may I encourage you to share the testimony about Jesus along with your testimony to those you have named up on the board. Grab some more invitation cards and and get them out to folks this week. Please share the facts and live out your faith because somebody's eternal destiny hangs in the balance. There are many ways that we can live out our faith. We can arise to faith. Many ways we can do that as we go throughout our daily business. There are lots of ways. But there is certainly one way that we arise to faith when we choose to gather with others on the Lord's Day and to partake of the Lord's Supper. That is one way that we arise to faith. Because when we do that, 
we are proclaiming to the world that we believe Jesus is the Christ. In fact, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper, has this to say, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In just a few moments, we're going to do just that. We're going to do just that. We're going to proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus. We're going to proclaim his resurrection from the grave. We're going to proclaim his ascension into heaven and his return to this earth to collect his bride, the church, the called out ones. That's us. That's what we're going to proclaim. 